Romans, probably Romans 8, safe to say. Genesis chapter 22 also, Genesis 22, 8. Cindy, it's good to see you here, because that means he's got to behave for once. Stan. All the way from Ohio, it's a rare occasion on Sunday. Let's give the Stan and Cindy, well, a.k.a. Satan and Cindy, but let's give them a warm welcome. I want to get up there sometime. My brother in grace tells me it's a really nice place up there. Phil. Where is Phil? He just comes and gets a bulletin and leaves. <laughs> Thinks there's something in there about him probably. So, you know. Now he's here. Genesis 22.8. Now, I've taken a very... Unusual strategy for Romans. I've taught Galatians backwards from back to front. I've taught places from front to back. But this is the first time in Romans, Romans the epistle, I've taught from two flanks, from the beginning and from the end to the center. It happens that the dead center is a little phrase called God for us. God is for us. It's the central message of Romans. It's the central message of the entire Bible. It's breath, I want to say breathtaking, it's breath-giving for us. If God is for us, and he is, first-class fulfilled condition of the conjunction E in the Greek, if God is for us and he is, who can be against us? And it goes on to say that he gave his son, he handed his son over, on behalf of us all, for us all. And the word all is emphasized also in that dead center that we're pressing toward, Christ and him crucified. That's what it's all about, God for us. You want to know what Romans is about? There's the beating heart. There's the breath-giving center. There's the dead and living center, the crucified and risen Christ for us. It's essential, probably, that we understand this central truth above all others in our life and in our lives on this earth. I've been studying various metaphors that depict Jesus Christ in the scriptures and in theology. There is Christus Victor, as we've started a little bit last week, Christ the Victor, a huge and enormous motif that is famous ever since the patristic theologians. There's also Christus Medicus, which we began last week, Christ the great physician. He called himself that physician, implied that he was the physician of the incurable wound of sin in mankind in Luke chapter 5. There's Christus Faber, or the Latin Christ the builder. I will build my church on this rock, and the gates of death, of Hades and death, cannot prevail against it. And recently, we studied Christus Rex, or Christ the King, as the descendant of David, risen from the dead, the Son of God, proclaimed as such by power, by his resurrection from the dead. And it began to dawn on me that one metaphor, or even two or five, is not sufficient to describe the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Christus Medicus, Christ the physician, 
provides an angle. We dealt with that pretty extensively last week. It provides an angle through which to view Christ's saving reality, the saving reality that is Jesus. Christus Rex, Christ the King, we've seen him as the one who cries out for deliverance, as he is beleaguered by enemies, and God delivers him as an act of righteousness. Delivering him, he delivers all whom he represents, which is all humankind. We've studied Christus Victor, which we haven't really hit too much, but it's a magnificently enormous text for many theologians today. But the problem is some of them emphasize it to the point that excludes some very important features of the cross. That's what I want to get into. After studying these things this week with great intensity, I realized that one metaphor is not sufficient. One motif, one theme is not sufficient to describe the saving reality of God in Christ. It takes a multitude of them and... When one gets behind one of these, as if it's the whole picture, much is sacrificed in terms of understanding and insight, the cross of Christ. Most notably is the example that those who exclusively endorse Christus Victor, because they often throw out the idea of substitution altogether in their zeal to do away with the notion of penal substitution. Now, that's a, a theological term that comes from our, it's related to our word penalty, penalty. Is Christ's death a penalty? So it's penal substitution. And it's imperative that we understand that Christ did act in a substitutionary way, a substitutional way, And in their zeal to do away with the idea of penal substitution as if God requires a sacrifice in his wrath to appease him, and he didn't. But in their zeal to do away with the notion of a penal substitution, they have missed out on one of the most essential aspects of the cross, which I want you to see today. And in seeing that, you'll see the Lamb of God at the center of Romans. Because Romans 8.32, God did not spare his son, the reference is back to Abraham. God did spare Abraham's son, Isaac. He did not spare his son. And in Genesis 22.8, there's a remarkable confluence of words there that summarize the entire gospel. And universally so. And as the Lamb is at the heart of Revelation, at the heart of John, we find it also at the heart of Romans, at the heart of Paul's epistles. And it is the declaration of God to all humankind. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the sin of a few, not the sin of many, the sin of all, and the sin that has warped the present universe so that it screams out, for deliverance. Many who get exclusively behind that single motif also tend to see the atoning death of Christ has been, that has been accomplished only for victims of oppression. 
A lot of this liberation theology comes out of that. The whole thing is for the victims of oppression with little or no thought given to the rectification of the oppressor or the perpetrator. In law enforcement jargon, there's the vics and the perps, the victims and the perpetrators. And if too much or all emphasis is placed upon Christ dying for the victims of oppression, your message becomes politicized pretty much, and you fail to recognize that Christ died for us while we were still enemies. And even the most maltreated victim also has the capacity for and has done some perpetrating too. We all have perpetrated some sinfulness that has hurt someone else. And so when Christ died, he didn't die just for the victims of oppression. He died for all the victims of sin, which is everybody, all mankind. Last week we showed how this word huper, hard breathing, U-P-E-R, huper, basically it's just hooper. We saw this word as meaning on behalf of, especially in Romans 5, 6, where Paul says, while we were still powerless, asthenes is a very powerful word to indicate powerlessness, without strength at all. It refers not just to human weakness as compared to human strength. It it refers to the total inability that is infused in us by the oppressive power of sin, the enslaving power of sin. And the fact that people can't even help their collusion, to use a word that's bounced around a lot today, collusion, willing complicity with sin, whether secret or not so secret. Everybody has been complicit with sin. Some some hide it better, like the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus said, you've had a cloak for your maliciousness until he came around. The cloak was violently ripped away when they called for the crucifixion of their own Messiah. And so, so much for secret sin and self-righteous people. And for ideologues who want to change the world beginning with other people, (laughs) not themselves. That's what ideology is whether it's socialism or whether it's right wing or left wing, it's let's change the world, but let's do it by changing other people, not myself, not through personal conversion first. That that would transform everything. So last week we showed that Hooper had the sense of on behalf of in Romans and shows God to be the ultimate philanthropist in his great love, his great mercy. And we must see that there is a thing called the wrath of God, but that it is enveloped in God's love. It is not wrath toward people per se, but that which would destroy people, that which destroys God's creation. God's wrath is directed toward that always. So Hooper has the meaning largely of on behalf of in Romans 8.31, where God is said to be for us, And that's in stark contrast to being against us. If God is for us, if he's acting constantly on behalf of us and has acted on behalf of us radically at the cross, who can be against us? Kata is therefore put at odds with 
Hooper. So the opposite of Hooper is against, therefore, on behalf of, is the sense there, for sure. And the proponents of Christus Victor, some of the people that have received the baton handed down from Herbert Armstrong and the Plain Truth people, want to emphasize Christus Victor to the point where the substitution is done. In other words, in their attempt to prune the tree of the cross, they're in danger of cutting down the cross altogether. And it loses the punch. It loses the teeth of the message. And so, though we admire some of the view of these theologians who see the horizon of redemption being universal, as I do, I think there's just as much, if not more importance, laid upon the center from which that horizon emanates, which is the cross of Christ, the essential moment in history, the eschatological moment, the moment when the judge God becomes the judged at Calvary's cross. So I want you to pay attention very carefully today because though I teach, the, t- the truths that I teach can be preached, proclaimed, explained, exclaimed by all of us. So the meaning hooper stands in contradiction to anyone who would be against us. Therefore, it's a matter of advocate, supporter, defender versus adversary, opponent, accuser. Sometimes that's our own conscience, which is why there weren't only sin offerings in Levitical regulations, but also guilt offerings. The church, even today, Christendom is riddled with guilty consciences, and that's a shame because the blood of Christ purifies our conscience to serve the living God. And that's what this message will do for you as we continue. The motif of Christus Victor is presented in apocalyptic style in Revelation 12 with the throwing out and down of the accuser. The accuser thrown out and down. And in a blending of Revelation with John, and it was intended to be blended. I didn't intend that poetry, however. It was intended to be a perichoresis of John and Revelation blended. In John 12, Jesus said, if I am lifted up, the I I am lifted up of Jesus corresponds in direct contrast with someone being thrown out and down. The accuser is thrown out and down. The advocate is lifted up, and with him... He takes with him as he's lifted up the sin of the world, the sins of the world, the burden of the sins. And when he takes, when he's lifted up, he takes away. The verbs are fascinating and riveting in the Greek. He, he's up and away. If I am lifted up, and he precedes it by saying, the prince of this world is now thrown out. And that corresponds perfectly with Revelation 12. Revelation can't be interpreted without Blending it with John's gospel. That way you get rid of all the weird, funky stuff that people are talking about today. The Antichrist, the tribulation in the future and all this other heretical and rather stupid nonsense that people support, unfortunately. It's a distortion of God like the doctrine of hell is, which is a doctrine of demons, as we'll show more and more. The accuser is thrown out and down. Jesus is lifted up and takes up and away with him the sin of the world. And if I am lifted up, meaning to take away the sin of the world, I will draw all to myself. I will draw. 
The word draw is used for the dragnet of fish. A fish gets in the dragnet. He isn't going to rebel. He may rebel, but he's going to be dragged to shore. That's redemption. Illustrated in the 153 fish, which is a universal catch in John 21. Jesus is lifted up and away with him as the scapegoat went away with the sins that were placed on his head into the wilderness, never to return. So Christ became sin for us, took away the sin, never to return. Christ as a curse does not return. Christ returns victorious in resurrection. So I will draw all to myself. He is judged in the place of the willfully sinning Adam. We have to see a substitution here. Adam, in whom all humanity are found unto death. The substitute for Adam who sinned willfully is the son, Jesus Christ, the son of God, who obeyed willingly to the extent of death by crucifixion. So God has also highly exalted him made him a single inclusive representative unto life as Adam was made a single inclusive representative unto death for all humanity. And so in the idea of substitution, Christ is definitely substituted for Adam for in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. First Corinthians fifteen twenty two. So he said this because of the, fact that he was judged in the place of the willfully sinning Adam in whom all die. I will draw all to myself, he said, because he died for the sins of all and was raised for the justification of all. Justification amounting to life for those whose problem was death in sins. Romans 4.25, arrow to Romans 5.18. We're going to see some other arrows going backwards in a few moments. So the idea of philanthropic advocacy, the advocacy of a philanthropist, is prominent here in this word, huper. God has always been for us, never been against us, never will be against us. When I say us, I mean all humankind. He is a great lover of human beings, all human beings. God loves so much that he gave his son. So that whoever believes in him will not only not perish, that is, be bent over under the weight of the enslaving power of sin, but have the life of the coming age even now. That's what John's message is about. Having the life of the coming age even now, even though then completely. Perishing isn't damnation in hell. Perishing is the result of continuous control by the power of sin that bends us over like it did the daughter of Abraham for 18 years under Satan's power in Luke thirteen sixteen. Philanthropic advocacy. It's further strengthened in Romans 8.34. If you're there, you can kind of look. We're glancing at these verses for now. 8.34 speaks of Christ as not only the one who died. He is the one who died. The one 
who died for all and as all. Substitution and representation are required there. Died, but was also resurrected, it says, and who intercedes for us. That's not just prayer. That's acting on behalf of us. In fact, Hebrews 7.27 puts it even more emphatically. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He, he lives in the action of being for us in his resurrected position at the right hand of God. He does not intercede in the sense that God is really mad, his father's really mad, and so he intercedes so that his father won't drop his anger on us. That's not the, that's not the point of intercession. The father and the son are one in their advocacy for humankind straight through. It wasn't God that needed to be reconciled to the world. It was the world that needed to be reconciled to God. And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There is no separation of the Father and the Son. Not at Calvary, not in resurrection, not throughout the incarnate life of Jesus Christ. Never. And I'll explain what I mean by that. And so the idea here in Romans 8.34 is advocacy, defender, same as the word used in 1 John 2.1. If anyone sins, let him know he has an advocate with the Father. Even Jesus Christ, strangely, who's called the righteous one. Who's strangely called the righteous one in Romans 1.17. Who is strangely called the righteous one in 1 Peter 3.18 who is oddly called the strangely and strangely weird kind of thing, the righteous one, meaning the only righteous one for everyone else. And he is the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? Does it mean like a pagan god, God's wrath needs to be appeased by child sacrifice? Not at all. Nowhere close. Not even near the mark. It's hamartia. It misses the mark. It's sinful itself. And so he ever acts on behalf of us. Our advocate. Our advocate was lifted up. Our accuser was thrown down. So even if your conscience agrees with the accuser, God is greater than your conscience, according to 1 John 3.21. The only way that people can get out of that damnable, self-condemning, self-loathing spirit is through realization that God is greater than their hearts if their hearts condemn them. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. God doing away with any concept of hell is greater than your heart that might tell you there is a hell. The idea here is not Jesus advocating for us with a God who's minded to punish us. That's not it at all. The God with whom he intercedes is the God who justifies the ungodly, rectifies the ungodly, sets right what's wrong, Romans 4, 5. And he's called. Who is he that's going to condemn? Christ? 
who died, God who justifies. God condemned, all right, he condemned sin in Christ, in the flesh of Christ. So, God is not against us. He is the God who justifies the ungodly. The Father and the Son are not separated in their great love and in their merciful advocacy for all people. They're not separated. All of humanity in all of its times. As the Father and the Son are one in their philanthropy, their love of humanity, and their advocacy of humanity, now, as they are now, so the Father and the Son were one when Jesus died for his enemies. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not charging the world with its sins, not charging the world for its sins. Second Corinthians 5.19 Because God the judge became the judged for us. Substitutions there, as well as advocacy, philanthropy, love. And the principle or the source and origin of love is not justice. But the principle of justice is love. This is another thing we'll be ironing out. It is impossible to remove substitution from the atonement. Yes, Christ is the victor over sin, over death. And he's the doctor who heals our desperate condition under the power of sin, which Micah called an incurable wound, incurable only cured by an unspeakable event called the cross. It's called incurable because it can only be cured by an unknown cure, an unspeakable cure. I say unspeakable because when you try to find enough metaphors and motifs to describe it, you realize you don't have enough. And so why? Because it's indescribable. It's still inarticulable. It's still indescribable. It's still unspeakable. And I find myself losing the vision of the cross when someone emphasizes one motif to the exclusion of others. And so, it's true. Christ is the doctor who heals our desperate condition under the power of sin. In fact, it says, while we were still sick, asthenes, while we were terminally ill, just in time, Christ died. For us. Just in time. The picture is intended to be that of a hopelessly terminally ill person. All medications have not helped. They're off all medications. 
And just in time. It says at the appointed time, but it just means just in time. Christ died for the ungodly. The weakness that he's describing, therefore, in Romans 5, 6, is the weakness imposed by sin's enslavement, which creates a human collusion, a responsible complicity with sin, even if you're not willing to be. If you want to follow the law, you'll find out in Romans 7 that you end up with unintended consequences. In trying to be good by the law, you end up doing the exact opposite of what you intend. That's the case with all Adamic ontology. Always will be. So then, I'm moving a little faster now. It's impossible to remove substitution from these motifs. The doctor who heals our desperate condition under the power of sin, the wages of which, or the remuneration of which, is death. The wages of sin is death means infinitely more than we think. Again, the one who heals us from our desperate condition under the power of sin, whose wages are death, Romans 6.23, also was the one who took away our sins or our responsible and willing collusion with sin. When Adam sinned, sin, capital S-I-N, was unleashed as a power. And it became a power that ruled the world of mankind, all mankind. Mahatma Gandhi included, Zarathustra, founder of Zoroastrianism, Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, as he's called, all sinned. All are under the power of sin. All are under its distortions. So when Adam sinned, sin was unleashed to become a power, a superhuman power that ruled the world of humankind from that moment on. However, we calculate this thing this redemption, however we calculate it, however, sin is a power that enslaves the human race and the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. I don't know any other declaration that matches that in its power. In order to take away the sin of the world, and when John called him that, he wasn't on a cross his taking away the sin of the world began when he was conceived in a woman, conceived in a virgin, his whole life in incarnation, culminating with his death on the cross. The lamb was taking away the sin of the world. In order to take away the sin of the world, God himself had to experience separation from God. Unspeakable, isn't it? This was not a penal substitution. Where Christ, God's child, was punished for our sins to appease his angry father. Wrong conception. That conception will warp you psychologically. It's not true at all. And that's the objection that atheists and agnostics have against Christianity. 
They view it as an angry God being appeased by sacrificing a child, his own child, brutally. That's not, the, that's not what the cross is. If you've had that conception in your mind, perish the thought rather than perishing under that thought. Let me explain further. It was a substitution in which Jesus experienced to the uttermost the absolute death that sin, capital S-I-N, would have led the entire human race to. The wages of sin is this death, this absolute death. In other words, the remuneration or the place where sin would lead all in Adam is an unspeakable kind of death, a horrific kind of death, an endless kind of death, an immortality in death. People choose to call it hell. It's not God damning people for sinning. It's where sin takes the human race unless it's taken away by a supreme benefactor who pays a supreme price. You can't take away price. If the Bible says we're bought with a price, how can you take away the concept of price from the cross? But it's not a penalty. Again, those who try to remove by just one motif, those who sometimes try to prune the tree of Calvary, and we should prune it from all of its decorations, and just leave a cursed Jewish prophet with nails through his hands and feet, and blood, and a battered face, a battered body, instead of adorning it with decoration, we should prune the tree. It's not a Christmas tree with fancy bulbs on it. We should prune the tree, but we shouldn't cut it down. This was not a penal substitution where Christ, God's child, was punished for our sins to appease an angry God. If he's an angry God, then why does Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? And if you've seen me, you've seen a self self-giving love when the father gave his son don't you know he gave himself to with him it was a substitution in which jesus experienced to the uttermost the absolute death that sin would have led the entire human race to in the end therefore it's an eschatological event the cross itself We'll be getting to that next time. It was an absolute death which can only be described in terms like hell, perdition, outer darkness with its inconsolable weeping and gnashing of teeth, endless torment with a guilty conscience that bores into the soul like an unkillable worm, all those images. That's where sin as a power And man's complicity or collusion with it would have taken the entire human race. Not where God would have sent the human race, where sin would have taken the human race. Now you're beginning to see what it means when Christ became sin. 
or Christ put away sin by the offering of himself. God the Father and God the Spirit, for that matter, were one with the Son on the cross when Jesus screamed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This famous cry of dereliction or abandonment not only identified Jesus as the royal descendant, Christus Rex, but we have to go beyond that. That one thing won't do it. That one motif won't explain it. Not only was Jesus identifying himself as the royal descendant of David when he cried that out, but it revealed that God himself, listen carefully, God himself was experiencing the horrific harvest of complicity with sin and the experience of the wages or the remuneration or where sin would have taken all the human race and creation with it. It is not that Jesus was abandoned by the Father to appease or satisfy the Father's wrath. Not that at all. But that God himself in Christ was experiencing the result of sin for us. For us. Hooper, on behalf of us, and also substitution is there. The judge became the judged. And the man Christ Jesus, for he was God and man, and the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, but he never stopped being God. The man Christ Jesus was dying in place of us. All of us who sinned. So that we would never have to endure the ultimate result of our willing collusion with sin. We will never endure the ultimate result of our own willing or even unwilling complicity or agreement with or obedience to the sin that enslaves us. Not going to do it. That's where substitution comes in. We were bought with a price. The biggest understatement in scripture. You were bought with a price. We were ransomed from slavery to sin. That's in the Bible. Saved from the deadly consequences of being in Adam to the very end. And of being responsible for perpetuating sin in our lives and in this world. Every one of us has sinned in a way that has allowed for the power of sin to continue in some area called our lives and the lives of others. All of us have. In society, sometimes you see oppressors. They oppress a victim class. The oppressors are defeated by the victim class, and the victims become worse oppressors than their oppressors. It's because that's the sinful condition. It doesn't divide humanity up into the damned and the elected, the good and the bad. 
Both the good and the bad are ugly. Take that, Tuco. God the Father and God the Spirit were one with the Son on the cross. We were ransomed from slavery to sin and saved from the deadly consequences of being in Adam and of being responsible for perpetuating sin in our lives and in this world. All of us, listen carefully to this, all of us, all of us, even those who style themselves as victims in this world have been perpetrators as well as victims. The line runs through us all. The price that was paid to secure our liberation was unspeakable. That's why not one motif. I got the motif that describes it all. It's Christus Victor. I got the motif that describes it all. It's Christus Medicus. I got the theme that describes. You don't have it. You can't exhaust the number of motifs it takes to describe that which is unspeakable. The price that was paid was unspeakable. Because where does sin end up? Where do people under sin end up in the ultimate result? God ended that end in himself, in Christ on the cross. That's the gospel. That's why one motif or metaphor is not sufficient in speaking of Jesus Christ and his atoning death and glorious resurrection. And that's why we thank God for his what? Unspeakable gift in 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Why? Because it arose from an unspeakable price paid by him, not by us. Take away substitution altogether. You haven't pruned the cross. You've sawed it down. And it's removed from your theology. And it's only the theology of the cross that explains God. And so you've done a great disservice to God while it sounds good for a little while in the ears of people. Because it tickles the ears. There's a lot of very attractive theology that I move through and have one word will fell it by God. One word. I'll read a whole thing and say, okay, that's what everybody's excited about in, theolo- in many, much of the theological world. Not all of it, thank God. And that's why I thank God for Fleming Rutledge, who kind of helped me along on this thing. And I'll close with her. Because any time we assume that one motif can get it, we're wrong. For the ultimate remuneration, wages is what it's called in most translations in Romans 6.23. The remuneration or the end result of sin's slavery or our collusion with it, our complicity with it. Would have been for us an unspeakable death. Would have been for us an unspeakable death. But the gift of God. Purchased at an indescribable cost to God. Called the blood of Christ. 
paid in his infinite self-giving, son-giving love. God's son-giving, S-O-N, giving. Son-giving love is his self-giving love. What if all of your love was invested in a son and you gave your son? Would you not be giving yourself? God's son-giving love was his self-giving love. And the son was in agreement for the son gave himself for us. For us. Why for us? To receive the penalty so God wouldn't stay angry? No. For us to save us from the wages of sin, which is an unspeakable death. And how did he save us? He died that death in place of us. Take away substitution with your themes. You don't prune the tree, you cut it down. That makes you, I hesitate to say it, an enemy of the cross of Christ. I'm a lot more careful when I read theologians today and when I gauge the trends of our time and the megatrends of theology. I'm a lot more careful. I have to put down the pen, the paper, the highlighters, the notebooks, the constant, countless, illegible scrawlings that I've written and say, God, what do you think? Show me what you think. And I'll wait. The gift of God purchased at an indescribable cost to God, paid in his infinite self-giving, son-giving love, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the unspeakable gift of eternal life for all mankind. For when he was justified, his justification was life for all. Put an arrow, Romans 3.25, the hilasterion, the mercy seat. The atoning death of Christ. Put that arrow through to 425 and let the arrow go through 425 to 518 and then to 831 to 34 and on and on. Or take the arrow from Romans 623 and fire it backwards with as much power back to four back to 518 justification for all life for all eternal life for all. Fire the arrow through 425 to 325, where we have hilasterion, which a lot of people don't like to say means the mercy seat. And I'll explain that as we close. Principle for the third time. Those who want to prune the tree of Calvary to remove the idea of penal substitution rightly better be careful not to cut the tree down by removing substitution altogether. Hooper does carry the meaning of substitution elsewhere. And it's a secondary nuance even in Romans. It carries both the meaning of substitution and representation in 2 Corinthians 5.14 where it says, One died, Hooper, H-U-P-E-R, Hooper, or Hooper, for all, Pantone, familiar word. One died, 
huper panton, for all. On this verse, A.T. Robertson, the noble exegete, comments this way. He says, the one who died for the all, and so the all died when he died. And then he says, and I emphasize this, all the spiritual death possible for those for whom Christ died. He died all the spiritual death possible, the absolute death, which is the wages of sin, the wages of sin as an apocalyptic power, its final harvest and its control of the human race, all the death that would have been died by all the humanity under that power was, di- was died by Jesus Christ. Anything that limits the unlimited, unlimited atoning death of Christ to me is a failed attempt at the gospel. Now, this is where I picked up some strands myself from Romans by dwelling on it a little bit. All the spiritual death that was possible for the human race to experience was experienced by Christ when he died. Moreover, a few verses down from 2 Corinthians 5.14, where it speaks of representation and substitution, it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When? All through the incarnation, all through the cross, up through resurrection. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing the world's sins to the world. Now, hook this up, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, with Romans 4, 6 through 8, getting back to David. It says, David describes the blessedness and the bliss, two things. The word happiness there means blessedness and bliss. Blessedness as a condition, bliss as a resultant experience. Blessedness, he said, he describes the blessedness of what? In, second, in Romans 4, 6, he describes the blessedness and bliss of the man whose sins are covered over. Covered, you can't undo this. Covered over. And this is the word. Well, let's do this first word. Apocalypto. Is that kind of a key word in Romans? Apocalypto. Let's do it now, what he's talking about here. Epi. E-P-I. Calypto. I'm almost writing in Greek. My penmanship is now a combination of Greek and English. Epicalypto. This is, if we're going to just get down to the raw basics of this, this is to take away a cover. This is to put a cover on. Blessed is the man and blissful is the person whose sins are covered over. This is the word that relates to the Hebrew word kapara, which is a name for the cover over the mercy seat, the cover having upon it the blood of the Lamb, whose sins are covered over. David describes the blessedness and bliss of the man whose sins are covered over, epikalupto, the opposite of apokalupto, and to whom God will not impute sin. So happy is the individual person to whom God will not impute sin, but what about 2 Corinthians 5.19, he didn't impute the world's sin to it. So what we have to say is, happy, blessed, and blissful is the world to whom God will not impute 
sin. How could he impute sin if his son became the sin that would one day lead us to a death that's unspeakably horrific by taking on that death which is unspeakably horrific in our place? Not, oh, God, you're angry. You're going to hurt these people. I'll get in the way. Hit me. And God hits him. That's not it at all. It's the Father and the Son and the Spirit agreeing. Sin entered into the human race through the willfulness of Adam, and sin became a power over the whole human race. What can we do to prevent the whole human race going the full distance under sin into an unspeakable death? Well, let's die that unspeakable death in their place. It's all about saving from the beginning. It's all about philanthropy from the beginning. It's all about mercy from the beginning. It's all about God always being that way and not having a change of attitude to the cross. You're the one. I'm the one that needs the change of attitude, not God. Theology needs a change of attitude. The church needs a change of attitude. The horrifying results, the horrific results on children of missing this gospel are being demonstrated in our day. Desperate evil when a clergy becomes a pederasty ring. How do you explain that evil? How do you explain it? It's not seeing Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's sidelining Jesus as a religious figure worthy of imitation in our lives, which is a failed enterprise. If you think trying to obey the law fails and turns to the opposite, trying to imitate Jesus and the energy of the flesh will turn to the opposite. It will turn from let the children come to me for salvation to let the children come to me to be abused. You can't! Have a gospel with a sideline Jesus. You cannot have a gospel without the cross being God, the judge, experiencing the judgment and the harvest of where sin would have taken the human race. The burden becomes terrifically great on the victim to forgive. What a burden is induced upon the victims. The burden of forgiveness. And may the victims not grow to be perpetrators, which is usually the pattern. So then, I could tell you things that you could not bear if I told you about the core of evil found in places in this world today. Which only accentuates the horror of the death of Jesus Christ for us. In closing, second phase of our closing. Blessed is the world of humankind whose sin is covered and to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Why is the sin of the world covered epicalupto over. Is it swept under the rug? No. Because the cover, Hebrew kapara, of the mercy seat 
which is found only once in Romans, Romans 3.25, hilasterion, also found in 1 John 2.1, Jesus Christ who is the expiation for our sins. Hilasterion, 1 John 2.1, 1 John 4.9, God is love in 4.8, and God demonstrated in this love in giving his son to be the expiation or the taking away of our sin, that we may live through him. Live through him. We're saved from this death to live through him. So then, the mercy seat is Christ. Those who have a problem with the mercy seat, and there are theologians that do, as a translation of Hilasterion in Romans 3.25, they have a problem because it conjures uncouth imagery of a God of wrath who requires appeasement And they should take into account this about the mercy seat, however, that the mercy seat means that God requires mercy. That's what it means. It's called a mercy seat because God requires mercy. He doesn't require a child sacrifice to appease his anger against people. God isn't a misanthrope, a hater of mankind. He's a philanthrope, a lover of human beings, all of them. All of us. And that his mercy has triumphed over judgment. That's what the mercy seat says. His mercy has triumphed over judgment only because God the judge became the judged at Calvary. Moreover, and this is preaching, Jesus the Son of Man suffered the righteous one, 1 Peter 3.18, on behalf of and in place of the unrighteous. Not to placate God, as if he needed to be propitiated by child sacrifice like a pagan deity. But to bring us to God, it says. He died, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. As God's sons in glory. When he appears, what does he say? When the son of man who suffered is escorted in Daniel 7, before the ancient of days, his father, what does he say? Does he say, here I am, Father, back from the dead, here I am? No, he says, I and the children which you gave to me. I and the children which you gave to me. Here I am, and in me and with me, all the children that you gave to me. All of humankind in my redemption. For by the grace of God, he tasted death for every person. That he might bring many sons into glory. Many is all. Many is all of humanity. Here I am, Father, and here I am with me, here with me, is all of your children that you gave to me, and with them all the creation that we redeemed. And God says, you know, I love that so much, I'm going to make all of them and all of creation my cathedral. I'll be in all, and I'll be all. I'll be all in all. There's a cathedral I want to go to. Hilasterion in Romans 3.25 is indeed the mercy seat because it's the place. It is the place where God showed mercy to all. Romans 11.32. And so, one metaphor doesn't do it. And I want to close by quoting something from Fleming uh, Rutledge. One metaphor, whether Christus Rex, Christus Medicus, Christus Victor, Christus Faber, 
None of them are sufficient alone to describe the saving reality that is Jesus. This is still me talking. Or the saving phenomenon on Golgotha. We need many metaphors, many motifs, lots of Sundays, Wednesdays, Thursdays. To even begin to approach a spiritual understanding of the saving reality of Christ in God and of God in Christ. To illustrate this, listen carefully to Fleming Rutledge in her book, Understanding the Death of Christ, the Crucifixion. Speaking in the context of the Passover, and I was intending to read another passage and I lit on this one, so this closes my message. Speaking of the Passover and Christ having become the sacrificial lamb, Christ, our Paschal Lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, has been sacrificed. Speaking of that reality of Christ's death as Passover, she says it makes the point that, quote, the emphasis is upon two main themes. One, rescue from death, as on the night when the dark angel passed over the homes of the Israelites. Two, deliverance from slavery as in the climactic passage through the Red Sea. Then she adds, quote, the blood of the Passover lamb was not, in this context, an offering for sin, but God's own ordained means of preserving his people from death. Moving the Last Supper forward one night, to make Jesus' actual death coincide with the slaughter of the Passover lambs, however, as the fourth evangelist does, that's our fourth gospel, is extremely audacious. Combining as it does within one gospel the concrete identification of Jesus not only as a sin offering, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but also as the Passover lamb whose blood saves from death. Yet another breathtaking step is taken by 1 Peter when the Passover lamb in 119 is put in proximity to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 in 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24. These are examples of the imaginative leaps that make the Bible witness inexhaustible. I love that. So my closing is this. Speaking of breathtaking, I call it breath-giving. The center of the book of Romans, God for us, and God giving, handing over his son for us all, not sparing him as he spared Abraham's son Isaac, is the breathtaking and breath-giving center of Romans. And it comes from Genesis 22.8. Look at it just for a moment. And I want to just let you dwell on some of these words. Isaac is on the way up the mountain with Abraham. Just as the father and the son both made the trek up Calvary. And Isaac says, where is the lamb or the ram or the goat or whatever? Where's the animal for sacrifice? This verse is almost untranslatable, but look at the words as they pop. Abraham said, God will see. Provide there isn't quite the word. God will see. And then he says, one from the flock. Could be a sheep, a lamb, could be a bullock, a red heifer, a lamb, but it's speaking of a lamb. God will see a lamb as a whole burnt 
offering for himself, my child. I'm struck by the wording. It doesn't come across in the Greek. It doesn't come across even in the Hebrew or the English. But in a conflation of them all, you have the Greek probaton, sheep. God will provide a sheep. Opsitai for in the Greek, opsitai means to see or to experience. Himself is used, autu, himself, and holocarposis, which means a whole holocaust or burnt offering sacrifice. So in Hebrew, we have Elohim, plural, indicating the triune God, the persons of the triune God. God, the triune God, will see, R-A-A-H. R-A-A-H means to see or experience. And then it says, S-E-H, one of the flock. That means one of humankind for the Hola, the whole burnt offering, and then he has the word son, Ben. What are the words? God himself, one of the flock, my son, the whole burnt offering. Do you see in the scriptures the gospel? Do you see that all the scriptures in the law and the prophets testify? In these words spoken by Abraham, we have God himself, the lamb. We have God himself will see the lamb God himself one of the flock one of the humankind one of the sheep one of the humankind the whole burnt offering God himself my son he says God speaking through Abraham calls little Isaac or young Isaac my son Ben my son my son the words let them ring in your ears God himself one of the flock my son the whole burnt offering God himself the whole burnt offering God himself experiencing the burnt offering the incurable cure of sin the incurable sin cured God himself and he says he'll provide one from the flock they see a ram only to indicate that the ram in the thicket isn't the lamb that will be provided it's the It is a ram is associated with the spared son. The lamb is associated with the unspared son. He's not spared, not the punishment of God who's angry for the human race. He's not spared for becoming the ultimate consequence or wages of what sin would be for the human race. That's what he did for us. That's what he did for you, for me. What an unspeakable death. What an unspeakable gift. So in all juxtaposition, these words in Romans 8.32 identifies God's son as the lamb not spared from the end result of sin's enslavement. He was not spared from the end result of sin's enslavement and collusion with sin, which would have been absolute death, indescribable death. But instead, he experiences it in place of all mankind. And God himself gives himself in giving his son. The judge becomes the judged, and the lamb dies and lives in the very heart of Romans. The very dead and living center. The very breathtaking and breath-giving. It takes away the breath of Adam in me. It gives me the breath of Christ. It takes away my breath. And it gives me breath. It kills me and it makes me alive. It crucifies me and raises me as I see these verses. And both flanks of Romans, 
from 1627 on one side, from one one on the other side, press and push and press and push till they get to this center. Thank you, Father. That's all I have to say.